It's That's Lit with me, Shazzy D, here on Triple H 100.1 FM, and I have got a special guest joining me in the studio. I've got Etiosa Abonlaho joining me today. Etiosa, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Now, Etiosa, you are a behavioral economist. Yes, I am. Now, can you please tell us what that is? Uh, a behavioral economist is, you know how sometimes people struggle with saving, you want to save a specific amount of money, but like you never seem to get there. In behavioral economics, we call this the intention action gap. And basically what that is, is people plan to do things, but end up not actually doing it. We never really follow through on our intentions. So as a behavioral economist, what I actually study is how come people don't do the things they want to do? And how do I change the environment? What can I uh, put in place to help people actually follow through on their intentions. So pretty much I study decision making and how to help people kind of stick to their decisions. Okay, so it's a lot with decision making. Pretty much. And so what I I guess uh, I'm curious about is the whole aspect of decision making because sometimes some people uh, would probably make a snap decision when they go into you know a shopping center if they're making a purchase. Do you kind of look at something deeper than just, you know, the snap decision-making process? It's it's a whole range, right? So it's both the um, the decisions you make when you're in what we call a cold state, sort of when you're thinking rationally, you're not excited, you're like in a certain specific state of mind, and you're going, okay, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? You know, what do I want to buy when I go out grocery shopping tonight? Um, all the way down to you're in an emotional state, what we call a hot state, and you're excited, and you're like, I'm going to go shopping I'm not thinking things through, I'm just doing whatever I want to do, right? So we really look at the whole spectrum of decision making, but also how the context and the environment you're in can actually influence the decisions that you make. Okay, so the environment. So let's talk about some of these environments. So say you are shopping for, let's pick something small. So say a lipstick, perhaps. You're shopping for a lipstick. Mm -hmm. Would you say that what kind of environments I guess could impact that kind of decision so think about the the pricing for example sometimes uh, research has shown that putting uh, a cheaper thing next to something that's really really expensive and then having a middle price that doesn't really kind of make sense um, will steer people towards a cheaper thing that they weren't planning to buy in the first instance so really pricing influences how people make decisions on what they choose. You can also think about the kind of products that are on there, the different aspects of the products, so the different features that the products have that steer you towards one thing or another. There's also things like uh, sometimes breaking one simple product into different things. So you read uh, a deodorant does, it does this and it does that. It also has like, you know, odor blocking technology. Mm. What does that mean? Nothing. But because those words are there, it kind of makes you think about it in a different light. So that's what might influence your decisions. Mm-hmm. And so what got you into uh, this role? Really, I love finances. I love personal finance. I've always been just really into thinking about how people spend their money and how they save effectively. Uh, I remember when I first started working, I got uh, my first paycheck and it was Oh, I, I, in my head, because I'm such a, a figures-oriented person, I knew exactly how much the paycheck was going to be. I knew exactly how much was going to come back to me. Like, I had everything planned out. And then I got my paycheck, and it was like reduced by 30% of what I thought it was going to be. And I was like, what in the world? What is this? And my parents were like, taxes. <laughs> Did you forget about taxes? 
and that just got me thinking you know like there's a lot that we don't think about with regards to finances i had worked my entire or like gone to college for four years and at no point did i remember oh you got to pay your taxes mm -hmm. when you start earning real mm -hmm. money so all of that just really got me into personal finance and thinking through well how do we actually make financial decisions uh and i had a psychology background already i was interested in finance mm -hmm. and one thing led to another, I ended up going to get a master's in behavioral economics in the UK at Warwick University, mm -hmm. um, and then moved over to Australia to do it for a living. Hey, hey! And so, in what kind of areas does behavioral economy, do behavioral economists apply? Where do they fit? So, it's in a whole range of spectrum. You can imagine that we're always making decisions across the board. So, there's behavioral economists in healthcare, for example, mm -hmm. looking at how uh, simple things like antibiotics. Uh, so in the UK there was a high incidence of people, doctors over prescribing antibiotics and that's not a good thing because mm. what happens is that the uh, the things get used to the antibiotics and the antibiotics become less effective because mm -hmm. everything else, the environment is used to it. So uh, there was a little experiment that behavioral economists in the UK carried out to really just try to get doctors to nudge them, quote unquote, to stop prescribing so many antibiotics. So that's one example of it in healthcare. Behavior economists operate really uh, in insurance, for example. You can imagine that in insurance, people are making decisions about uh, what they might be doing in the future, what they've done in the past. Uh, some bits, of decisions in context of uncertainty. You've never done this before. You're not quite sure. Will my house get flooded? Will it not? Mm -hmm. How long am I going to live? I have no idea. Should, what kind of insurance should I buy? So all of those decisions they matter really uh, a lot to people's financial well-being. So of course, behavioral economists play in the insurance space, and of course, we play in the financial space as well, helping people save better, spend more effectively, or spend more wisely, uh, and plan for the future. Mm -hmm. And speaking of saving, which is you know something that we all, I, I guess, I assume, all strive to achieve to have little savings, you know, in your little piggy bank or a big piggy bank, you know, some people. <laughs> um, and so, do you have any kind of tips that you can maybe share of you know how we can save better based on you know being a behavioral economist. Uh, I, I should caveat that I can't actually give any financial advice. You should go to a financial advisor if you need uh, specific personal advice that can be tailored to your situation. But in terms of saving, I think that what really matters is think about why you want to save. So I think everyone has this bias towards let me just save money because it's what I'm supposed to be doing. But actually, the things that motivate you and the things that get you to do what you want to do is kind of that what is the value of it to you, right? Why do you want to save? Are you saving up for a holiday? Are you saving up for a car? Are you saving up just to feel comfortable and know that you have money in case anything goes wrong? List out why you want to do the thing and then figure out how much do you want to save. Once you have those two down, then it becomes a matter of kind of tweaking your environment to help you save better. So you might, for example, set up automatic withdrawals from your checking account where your income gets paid into directly into your savings account, for example. So every day or every week your paycheck hits, XYZ percent goes straight into your savings account. That's one way to do it. Some people also like to actually physically uh, limit the amount of cash they can spend. Mm -hmm. So they'll go into uh, up to the ATM and take out however much it is they want to spend for the week and they'll only spend cash for that week. So there's a whole bunch of different tips and tricks, but what really matters at the core is why do you want to do it and having that in front of you at the top of your mind. Mm -hmm. And so you have uh, also interviewed other behavioral economists. Can you kind of talk about uh, what, what led to that and what you were trying to achieve with that? It was kind of funny because my friend who is also a behavioral economist, she is studying for a PhD at Warwick University in the UK, wanted me to write for her blog. 
and I was feeling lazy, so I said, why don't we interview people instead? This way I don't have to write anything. <laughs> so that was kind of the idea of me feeling lazy and being like, we could interview people instead. Yeah. But it ended up being really great because what we, what we thought we'd do is really go to kind of the best of the best, most prominent people in behavioral economics, most prominent practitioners of the field, and really ask them questions like, where's this field going? What is the future of behavioral economics? Because behavioral economics is a relatively young field. We've mm -hmm. only been around for about 40, 50 years. You can compare mm -hmm. that to things like medicine or mm -hmm. physiology, or etc. But because it's so young and it's, and it's become quite popular so quickly, there's a lot of people who are using it in very interesting ways and maybe not true to the science of the discipline. Oh, okay. So behavioral, we always say behavioral economics, it, it's a science, right? It's accompanied by there has to be academic evidence or some sort of rigorous evidence behind it. There has to be experimentation to make sure that whatever you're telling people is going to work, mm -hmm. you've tested it and you make sure it actually will work in that context. Uh, so because there's a lot of kind of processes involved or experiments and things that you have to think through when you're practicing behavioral science or behavioral economics, it's kind of, it becomes easy for people to ignore the science part and focus on the interesting stories that come with being a behavioral economics or be, being a behavioral economist. So really wanted to talk to people about, well, what do you think the future of the science is and where do we as a field get to if we lose the, the discipline around the science, for example, and stick to storytelling? But all in all, it was a really interesting process. It was really good to talk to so many different people doing amazing things in the field. Yes. And I mean, hey, I'm interviewing you, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning heaps from this. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little mm. because I understand uh, you have also been in the publishing industry. Yes, yes, yes. So you have a love of uh, books? <laughs> I have an adoration of books. <laughs> I have a need for books. <laughs> I cannot exist without books. It's not a cute love. It's like we run deep. Yes. We run deep. Yeah. So, okay. This this is a tough question, mm. and you may get this a lot. But do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite book? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, or or several, because I know one is hard to just. It's hard to pick a one, but my favorite book, surprisingly, mm. and this is the book. I know it's my favorite because I've taken it with me all around the world. Um, it's called Things I Want My Daughters to Know. Okay. And it's by Alexandra Stoddard. Okay. And it's basically like the most random book in the world, right? But basically it's this mother writing to her daughters little life lessons and uh, just incredible perspective. And it's so surprising because it's A, not the kind of book I would usually read, B, not the kind of person I would normally go to for advice. But there's something about that book that has just really resonated with me and stuck with me for the last couple of years I've been doing this whole adult thing. <laughs> yes, adulting. <laughs> uh, what is your genre, though? If this isn't your usual style, is there a particular genre you gravitate towards? I like that. I, so I My genre, there's two main ones. <laughs> the self-help thing, I love like psychology. I love learning more about how the brain works. Mm. I've been reading a lot of neuroscience uh, more recently. I like everything that helps me figure out what are human beings and what do we do in the world and how do we function. <laughs> love all of that stuff. And then on the other hand, I really like well-written fiction. Mm. And when I, so I used to work in publishing, I was an editor um, for one of the big publishing companies in New York. And the, what I tried to purchase or what I tried to publish would be books that really had some sort of like hardcore research behind them. Mm. Like books where they weren't necessarily historical fiction, but you could tell that the author really has to go back and do the work and figure out what were people doing at this point in time? What is this one about? Like really do the research and put together a body of, or work, not just like a QC novel or 
an interesting story, but like a story that you could tell was well researched, just really like a work of art almost. Mm -hmm. So I love reading books where you can sink into it and there's just layers and levels and things that help you go, this author really spent time thinking about this, like they put in the work. Yes. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, no. That's the genre, that's it. Yes, okay, no, I, I totally agree. And you may disagree, you may agree with this, okay? Um, I am a fan of, okay, <laughs> don't judge me, okay, people. I'm a fan of Outlander, so I read the whole series Ooh. up to now, because it's still going. I'm pretty sure... Um, they're still writing, oh well, Diana Gabaldon. I feel, I feel like I'm saying her name right. Gabaldon? Gabaldon? I could be wrong. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name. But yeah, she's still writing uh, one more or maybe a couple more. Um, so I read, and I found what I really liked about that book was just the level of detail she went mm. into because they're really big, they're really extensive, and there's many of them. And just all the you know Scottish history and all the details and even at the back she would kind of be like well this probably isn't accurate and this part probably you know historically isn't right but she would just mention it and I just think like it's you're saying yeah like you actually exactly. went all the way in you didn't just kind of yeah. like okay here's this kind of fiction story and we'll just throw these two people in mm -hmm. this time give them random things yeah and not that there's anything wrong with making anything exactly wrong. nothing wrong with it the precision and the dedication that it takes to just sit down and like go figure it out. Yes. What were people doing in Spain when Franco mm -hmm. was alive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what were they wearing? What were they eating? What How were they, they talking? About? What yeah. were the newspapers saying? Like, exactly. All of that stuff. You, you do the research well and you write very well and it creates just a book that is incredible. Right. Right. Uh, uh. And so uh, you, as you mentioned, you're an editor at a publishing company. How is it, or how's that feeling seeing kind of a book that's come through and you've read it and you're like, yes, green light, I love this book, and then seeing it, you know, on shelves? How's that? It is the most incredible feeling in the world. So the very first book I published, I was an editorial assistant. And so what would happen would my editor would get in submissions from agents all around town. And I worked with an editor who was one of the best in the industry, is still one of the best in the industry. So it should get like best of the best, right? Like really good submissions from the best agents in town. And so she got this submission in and she said, hey, do you want to read this book? Because like, I love wine, I love food. Really big on that stuff. And she was like, I know you're a foodie, you know, this book is about wine, like take it, read it, see how, whether you like it or not. Because she wasn't too sure how she felt about it. And I read that book in one evening. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I stayed up till like 10 p.m. writing her like this massive email about why she had to publish it and like how great it was. And she came in the next one and she was like, you know, I, I saw your email, I've read the book, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what you're talking about. No. Since you love it so much, you publish it. Ah. And I was like, oh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Ah. I, I certainly will. And so that was the first book I got to publish and just, it was incredible working with the author. He had spent about seven years writing the book. Oh my so goodness. So he gave that attention to like detail and mastery and like, God. it was Do a book you, that was set. Remember the name of the it book? It was called Vintage. Vintage. By David Baker. Okay. One of my favorite people. Oh. Um, but it was just an incredibly well-written book. It was a fun book. It was a well-researched book. He was talking wine and food. He was in France. He was in Moldova. It was like, it was an incredible book. But just the, the, the joy of working in publishing and the joy of working with books is that when you usually, when you're, when you're publishing a book, it's, a, it's something you care about, right? The story touches something in you. It makes you go, I am going to tell everybody about this book everybody's gonna hear about how much I love this book and I don't care <laughs> you know like that excitement that makes you go it's 10 p.m. and I'm writing this email to my editor like she's gonna hear how much I love this book because she's publishing this book whether she likes it or not mm -hmm. right um so going through that process and 
the book publishing process is about 11 months maybe okay. so wow. it, you're really people think editors like go sit in a little corner and like edit books no you're almost like uh, a project manager slash mm. miniature CEO of your little book company because you're working with the marketing team to market it properly publicity to get your editor the right your author the right slot you're working with your author of course to like get the book into like the right shape you're negotiating with your author's agent the right amount that you want to pay the author for the book the royalties the contracts all of that stuff you're talking to the sales team about where they should be selling the book you're talking to booksellers about why they should be buying the book yeah. you're and that, that's not even like half of it. You haven't even talked to like sub rights or international sales or like Whoa. the art team, like trying to get jacket the cover of the book to like a place where the author likes it, your marketing director is happy, your um your art director is happy. It's a whole entire process. Everything, even like these are things like the typeface of the book, that goes through you as well. And if somebody's not happy in the process, like you gotta go back to structure and go, All right, let's figure this out. Wow. So you go through that for 11 months and the book slowly like just because from like a manuscript on a computer to like something that has been typeset to like a little bound galley which is just like kind of printed out pages that helps get up with a stapler but like okay. it looks like a book to like a book that has a jacket cover and then like it slowly becomes an actual hardcover book. So anyway, this book went through the entire process and I worked in uh, Rockefeller Center. So next to in the same area as Rockefeller Center is the... The Midtown Manhattan Library, which is the big library that has the two lions in front, like Ooh. it's the it's the monumental one. Mm -hmm. So I was was it in there? It was either the 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 other library down the street, which of course makes no sense to anybody listening to this. <laughs> hey, some people will know. Some people, hey, if you have been to New York, you will know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but um, I was walking. I went into the library like a few maybe a, a few weeks after the book had been published because I needed to get a book or something from the library. And in the section, in new releases, is this book that I published, just hanging out in, like, the actual NYPL, Midtown Manhattan, like, Fifth Avenue, like, wherever, wow. <laughs> whichever brand it was. And it's just a feeling of, like, wow. You, like, you did it this? all that time, how all that. How good is this? And if that's how you as an editor feel, you can imagine how the author feels. Like, yeah. This idea that was in my head and I worked for so long on and faced so much rejection and finally, like, mm. it happened. It's an actual book book. It's mm -hmm. an actual book. Oh. So. What an incredible <laughs> process. It's so, it's so interesting. Because, I mean, I'm always, I'm on the, I'm the receiving end, you know, <laughs> the person who goes into the library or to the bookshop or, you know, wherever, and you get the book and you're like, hey, this looks like a great mm. book, and you just pick it up and on your way. But, you know, thinking about the actual process, process behind it, it, yes, yes, it is a big <laughs> one, but oh, must be rewarding. And, I mean... Who doesn't love the new book smell? I'm just saying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now, my final question for you. What advice would you give to somebody out there who's thinking, you know what? Behavioral economics. What? I want to get into it. How? Mm. What would you say to them? I would say either have a economics background or psychology background but if you don't have that you definitely want to get uh, a master's in behavioral economics and do some studying because you need the technical rigor. I suspect that the future of behavioral economics as we evolve and advance is that people who don't have that technical training will slowly fall fall off just based on the way things are going and um, so it's going to be it's going to become very important that um, either you have a technical behavioral economics background or have an economics background or a psychology background or that you can run experiments, you can talk uh, comfortably to like the experiments you're running, you can talk to the literature, you can talk to the research, but definitely 
just probably get a master's in BE is the first one and if not that then think through maybe taking a behavioral economics course or something that can give you the real technical knowledge that you're gonna need great oh it has been such a pleasure speaking with you so Atiosa. thank you for having me this mm -hmm. is so much fun yeah what's fun oh <laughs> my goodness